You're listening to Rivercast, brought to you by River of Life Church in Gilderland, New York. Now here's Pastor Sean. This morning, we are wrapping up 1 John. And uh, we have been in it for quite a few months. I'm excited that on Easter we'll start a series in Daniel, and I'm really looking forward to that. It's been a while since we've been in the Old Testament. In fact, we're going to be in the Old Testament till essentially the fall. We've got Daniel coming up, and then we're going to do, the ju- do Judges, and we're going to do uh, some of the Minor Prophets, and uh, it's going to be a fun, fun time. But um, this morning, as we kind of wrap up the series on authentic faith, you know, all of us as we go through life, want assurances at different stages, right? We don't want to step into complete unknown, complete insecurity, instability. When you buy a home, there's a lot of things that you want assurances about, right? Even when you're just going out, I mean, that's half the reason most people hire a realtor because they want to have somebody that's kind of knows the, the landscape, if you will, literally the, the, the lay of the land and kind of knows what you're looking for and kind of have the inside scoop to kind of be your guide to find that home that, that you want. And uh, if there's two of you buying a home, aren't you, you know, you're talking about those things and thinking about, you know, is this house going to provide for us? It's what we're, and is it what we're going to need? Is it within our budget? Can it fit? Is it all of those things, school districts, all of that? And, and as you go through that and you begin to figure out the one house that you're really interested in, and if you put an offer in it, you have uh, inspectors that go through to check everything out, to make sure the electrical's good, the plumbing's good. And if you're buying it in the country, they even encourage you to dig up part of the, you know, the septic tank so you can see what's going on with the septic system, because the last thing you want to do is get into a $20,000 project when you spend all your money on you know, buying the home. And then you get to the point where you sit down to actually buy the thing, and there's attorneys all over the place to make sure that everybody's interest is taken care of. All of that is for one thing, so that we can have assurance about what we're getting, that as few surprises as as possible are there. Well, this morning, I want us to look at three assurances that that God gives us. Three, go to the bank, rely upon amazing assurances that God gives you in life. You know, part of growing and maturing in life as we graduate from school or we move forward from that on into life, more and more, it seems to me that we, we realize that there's just not that many assurances in life, right? We kind of almost hardwired growing up, a lot of us, and depending on the home we grew up in, kind of think that, well, life ought to work out and it ought to make sense, and you know, but somewhere along the way, reality hits, and we begin to realize, like, whoa, there's just not a lot of assurances in life. Well, this morning, God gives us three clear ones in 1 John 5, so take your Bible and turn with me, and we'll look at these together. Look with me in verse, verse 11. The Bible says this. John, as he's wrapping up this wonderful letter, giving us a clarity about our salvation and our relationship with, with God in heaven, he says this. He says, This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. This is very simple but profound. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe, you're already believing, but who believe in the name of the Son of God, and here's why I'm writing them, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Pray with me, would you? 
Father in heaven, I am grateful for these words that they are so true and they are simple and easy to understand, but they are not simplistic and they are profound. Father, I pray that you would help us to have the assurances in full, to understand them, to appropriate them, for them to be real in our lives and in our hearts that you want them to be uh, in that way, living within us. God, help us to be encouraged, to find joy, to find security and peace in these truths this morning, I pray. Lord, each one of us needs a voice, to hear your voice, needs a word from you, and I pray that you'd grant that through your eternal word this morning. Pray this in, in Jesus' name. Amen. The first assurance that I just read to you is the assurance of eternal life. John says, this is the testimony. This is the swear on the Bible, if you will, testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. See, God wants us to know that we have eternal life. When we have Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, when we have put our, surrendered our, our full faith to be in him, not in ourselves, not hoping that life is just somehow going to magically work out, not trusting in ourselves that we're going to be good enough that, you know, to make everything okay with God in heaven, but that we realize that we've sinned against a holy God. And when we also put our trust that Jesus is the one that saves us from that. It's not us trying to be good enough. It's not us trying to cover it. It's not us trying to hide, not us trying to make up for it, but it's Jesus who saves us from our sin. And the Bible says that we have eternal life because in that moment we have Jesus. And because we have Jesus, we have life. And very simply, if you have Jesus, you have life. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have life. Very simple kind of thing. And I want us to recognize that, that that salvation, if you will, that eternal life, it's a relational thing. It comes out of our, our relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not, it's not like a gift uh, that we get from somebody, you know, a long lost aunt that leaves us, you know, a million bucks in, their, in her will. I mean, that would be as fantastic as that would be, uh, not very realistic. But, you know, many gifts come to us sometimes from people that we don't know that well. This gift of eternal life comes as a function of our relationship with God. This is a close-to-close -close kind of relationship, a face-to-face -face that when we see Jesus for who he is and for the Savior of the world as the Son of God, in other words, God who became man onto this earth and died for our sins, and we put our whole faith and trust in him, we have this incredible gift, eternal life, and it's something that we have right now. The Bible is written as God's word, perfect and pure for all time, and you can rely upon it completely. And it's very specific and very precise. And he says, the Bible says in verse 11, it, it doesn't say that this is a testimony that God will give us eternal life. It doesn't say in verse 12 that, um, that whoever does not have the Son will not get life. In other words, what it's saying is, is that if you have Jesus today, You've got eternal life today. Eternal life isn't something that we get when we go to heaven. It's something that we have right now. Now, last week I shared with you, those of you that were here, remember the cycle that I put up on the screen, the PowerPoint? I'm going to go back to that again. In fact, it's up there already. Great job, Tommy. Thank you. 
This is the clearest picture in all the Bible that I know about what eternal life really is. And John impacts it for us in the first five verses here of chapter five. And, and he says in there that he says, if you believe in the Jesus is the Christ, in other words, if you really believe and surrendered your faith to Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord, you are born of God. God not only adopts you into his family, you are birthed into his family. And everyone who is birthed into his family that, that is a part of his family, they begin to love other people in a very different, complete, pure, overwhelming way. They begin to love God and love people, as he says. And out of that, we know that we love others when we obey God and keep his commandments. Our obedience that we talked last week is a function of our love for God. It's a function of our love for people. It's not a legalism. It's not a, an outward conformity, if you will. Uh, what Jesus wants in, uh, in us is not that we conform to some set of rules or some set of religion or some sort of set of lifestyle expectations. Rather, he wants us to have an honest-to-goodness relationship with him, to be born into his family, and to, out of that love, to, out of that, that life, we love one another, and because of it, we begin to live differently, and, and we begin to obey him, and as we obey him, it produces victory in our life. And then, in the, that, from that passage to now, John gave us several reasons why we ought to believe that Jesus is the Christ. This is the clearest definition that I know of what eternal life is all about. This is the clearest definition of what God wants us to live and experience in this life. He doesn't want to just save us from our sins some point in time in the future so that we can go to heaven. Sure, that's, that's wonderful and incredible. But he wants us to experience this every day, day in and day out, as a part of our life, renewed in that relationship, living our life, not just to the you know, thrown to the wolves, if you will, in the world around us, but he wants us to live in that life as a part of his family, a part of that love relationship, more and more obedient to him, growing into what that means, and experiencing victory all all, over all the pitfalls and all of the things that this world has to off, offer us that will trip us up and bring destruction to our life. And as we shift gears here into 1 John, he wants us to know that that's a part of our life. He says, these things I've written that you may, who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have that, that you have eternal life. And in context, this is what that eternal life looks like that we just talked about. Now, if you go to, go two slides, Tommy, if we will, skip the next one. Yep, dead on, man, thank you. We talked briefly about what counterfeit religion looks like. Anything... Everything of extreme value is always faked. Money, relationships, um, pornography and prostitution is nothing but a counterfeit of that which is valuable between a husband and wife. Anything of value is counterfeited. The greatest thing that we could ever have and experience is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ is eternal life. So we should not be surprised that there's counterfeit faith, counterfeit Christian faith. For many, they have a belief in Jesus. They believe the facts about Jesus and about God. But rather than being born, as John talks about, their focus is really on being a member. They, 
walk through the steps or whatever church it is that they're joining, whatever denomination they're joining, and they do all of the things that they tell them to do, and the big deal is, is that they're a member of that. And they know stuff. Rather than living out of a love relationship with God, that we're His children, those individuals tend to focus on the stuff that they know, the traditions and the teachings of the church, and it produces an adherence to that religion or to that faith. Not really a, a, a life of obedience that, that springs from a heart of God 24-7, but it's more of a kind of, we're going to carry the name, I'm going to wear the hat, if you will, but I'm really not living out that faith 24-7, seven days a week. And when we live that kind of faith, there is no victory over the world. There is no victory over sin. And what, what John is telling us is, guys, and is this. He wants us to know, and you can go back to the previous slide that we talked about, Tommy. He wants us to know that our faith is not only real, but we have it. Now, why is he taking such a long time to do this? Why did he write so carefully, going over and over and over again, drilling deeper and deeper and deeper as we talked about it? It's because of this. There will come a time in your life, and probably multiple times in your life, when you will be pushed hard about what you believe internally, maybe externally in the environment around you, and you will really ask those hard questions. Is this really real? Am I... Do I really know the truth? Does, is this what's right? We live in a world around us where what is right is becoming wrong and what is wrong is becoming right. And John wants us to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that, hey, if this whole world becomes ridiculously crazy and falls apart, I want you to know in the deepest depths of your soul that you have eternal life. You have nothing to be ashamed of. You have nothing to run from. You stand on very firm ground. You have this relationship with God in heaven, and you live it out in love, and I want you to know that this is a real part of your life. There will be people that will try to talk you out of that faith. There will be people that will try to change that. There will be people that will accuse you of all kinds of evil things. And we could spend some time talking about that, but I don't think it would be particularly edifying. But you know where you are and the relationship that you have with God in heaven. And he wants us to know that we know that we know that. Second implication of this, if this is what God really wants to be a part of our life, doesn't it stand a reason that we should lean into this even more? Doesn't it stand a reason that this is what our focus of our life should be? Doesn't it stand a reason that our whole life ought to be focused out of that relationship with God that we have in his family? And every day we should be thinking about and caring about how and whether or not we're loving to uh, others and to God around us. Shouldn't every day we be thinking about how do we please God and out of that love, living for Him in a way that reflects His glory and living that life of victory? This is what the Christian life should look like. See, it's not about a conformity of externals. It's not about a set of rules that we adhere to. Um, even though we're as a church that... You know, we even have, you know, like specific memberships and those things. It's not as much about that as it is about living this. This is what our life should be about. So I want to challenge you. As you think about your relationship with God, it's not enough to just know that you're saved and on your way to heaven or that, that God is there. This is what God wants us to lean into. So we have an assurance that we really have surrendered our life to Christ. God wants us to live with security, security, 
with joy, with peace, with all of the blessings that this is a reality. And he wants us to hold our head high no matter what's going on in the world and the day around us. Some Christians are increasingly missing that. And, and they tend to be doomsdayers. They tend to think the world is falling apart and they almost begin to feel like it's their job to straighten the world out and all of that. And, you know, guys, when I read scripture, I expect the world to fall apart. It's kind of in there. It, it kind of is in there from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Do I like it anymore? Nope. Sean, are you saying that our country, the U.S., isn't changing for the worst? Yeah, no, I, th I do think that is. I think that's true. But my job is not to be a spiritual fighter, if you will. My job is to live that circle. And in that world, to glorify God, and that's the way that we have victory over the world, not trying to make the world conform to what God is doing in us. The world can't live that way. It doesn't have eternal life, but we do. So we ought to be people of hope. We ought to be people of joy. We ought to be people holding out that hope and love in the world around us and living with our heads high, not afraid, not in fear, but knowing that regardless, though the world fall apart, we have a hope in Him. That's the first assurance that we have. Second assurance I want us to know is that God not only wants us to know that we have eternal life and to have an assurance of, our, of that salvation, that authentic faith, but He wants us to have, know that we have an assurance of answered prayer. This is so amazing. Look what He says. In verse 14, He says, uh, this is the confidence that we have toward Him. We have a, a confidence and assurance toward God that we're in a relationship with Him, and this is the, the confidence that comes out of that. And here it is, that if we ask anything, not some things, not a few things, not one or two things, according to His will, there's a caveat in there, we'll talk about that, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests. The requests are already, we have them, that we have asked of Him. Our answers, the answers to our prayers, come out of our relationship with God in heaven. You see, we go to God praying and asking for Him to work in our life, in the work, in the lives around us, in the circumstances around us. And as we go to Him, we don't go to Him as a beggar. We don't go to Him as somebody holding their hand out without any relationship with God. We go to Him as sons and daughters. We go to Him saying, God, God, would you work? God, here's a need. God. And the Bible says is that if we're asking this according to His will, I'll talk about that in a second, that He hears it, and we already have the answer to our prayer. You see, the moment that you pray within the will of God to a heavenly Father, it doesn't matter if it's a big request, an impossible request, a miracle kind of request, or if it's a little thing. The Bible says that we already have it. He's given it to us. Now, sometimes the actualization, sometimes the reality lags behind. But in God's mind, and in the reality and the economy of God's world, who is sovereign over all the world, who sees all, knows all, is all wise, all powerful, all love, we're going to Him and asking Him. He says, done. 
It's kind of like, if you, were, if you will, going to the king that has all power in the kingdom and making a petition before the king, and the king says, granted. Well, between the time the king grants your petition and the time the, when, when it really happens, there's always a transfer of time, right? Well, you and I live in the middle of that time, and so we pray to God, and we're like, God, we're like the two-year-old. Mommy, can I have this? Well, yes, you can have it. Well, can I have it right now? Uh, wait. You know, let me at least walk across the kitchen and go get it. You know, can I stop washing my hands? You know, wait. We live in that wait moment, right? How many of you feel the pain of waiting for answers to God, your prayers to God in heaven? Yeah, I'm there. I want the microwave. I want the, the instantaneous, you know, let's do boop, boop. We do have to be careful. If we're not careful, we make God out to be some sort of like the old gumball machines or the, you know, put your little money in and out spits the, you know, this is not, God is not a kiosk that you just walk up to and, you know, punch in your little thing that you want and out spits the answers. He's a God in heaven who is working and who is working in scenarios and situations beyond our understanding. But the promise that he tells us is the assurance is that we should completely take him at his word that the answer has already been granted. Even if it takes a little while for it to unfold, we should always trust that. Now, the deal is this. You and I, there's one caveat in this. There's two or three in all of Scripture. We're going to talk about this one. But there's a condition that he tells us of what our answered prayer is. Our prayer has to be in alignment with his will. Not our will, but his will. I think Jesus prayed something like that, didn't he? In the garden, not my will, but the old King James, thy will be done. If Jesus, who is God's natural born son, he is God himself, had to pray according to God the Father's will, how much more should you and I? You see, prayer is not you and me trying to get our will in heaven Prayer is you and me going to heaven, going to God, asking him to get his will done on this earth. Well, Sean, that's a little weird. If God already has a will and wants to do it, why do I need to bother to ask? Like, why can't I just sit here and just, you know, sit? Well, I don't fully know the answer to that, but I will tell you part of the answer goes something like this. God wants to involve you in the process and to experience the joy of participating with him and bringing his kingdom and all of his work on this earth. And it's awesome. If you were a little kid, did you, you know, I don't know if it was maybe with your, your father or your mother, or your grandfather, or grandmother, or aunt, uncle, somebody, I don't know, maybe your best friend's dad, but did you ever help them on a little project, you know, whether it's cooking or making something? I can remember my dad working on a lawnmower, and, you know, and, and, and when I became a dad, I realized, wow, I must have really slowed my dad up a lot. Because you know how it works with little kids, you know. They end up making a mess, and they want to help, and you want, and you love it. But you just multiplied your project by a factor of three, you know. <laughs> There's probably a, a, an algorithm in there mathematically, like take the age of the kid, divide it by their experience, you know, by the square root or whatever, and you can probably figure out the time that it would add to it. And, uh, and God somehow... He's inviting us like the little kid into his work project in the world, and it's awesome. 
When you and I get to pray and to see, and God actually answers that, and somehow because we are born of God, the Holy Spirit of God works inside of us to help us kind of get an inkling of what He wants to do. That's how we know how to pray according to His will. Two, two basic reasons, or two basic ways. What's He say in the Bible? And what's the Holy Spirit leading us into? And is, the more you grow in your relationship with Christ, the more you begin to discern what those things are. And it's awesome when we get to participate in that and to see what God is up to. But when our prayers are aligned with the will of God, the answers are done. We don't think in that kind of economy. We tend to think of big and small. We tend to think of what people owe us or not. You have some people that you know that you've probably got one wish in front of them, right? Yeah, I could lean on them for this one you know, thing. They did, I did something for them. I'm going to hold on that IOU till they kind of owe me, right? And we kind of think of it that way. And we kind of gauge, well, this is a really big request. I don't think they're going to answer that. And we, we do that just unconsciously with people. I want you to notice that's not in this passage. The issue isn't how big is this request. The issue isn't, well, how much does God love us? Are we in good relationship with Him? The issue is very simple. Is it God's will or not? Because you see, every request to God is a small request. If it was God's will for, uh, to give each of us a million dollars, He would absolutely do it. And if we asked for it, that would seem like a really big thing, probably to most of us. But to God, it's like, that's no big thing. Every request that you and I could come up with is a small thing to God because He's all-powerful. He never has to work out. He never has to go to the gym, if you will. It's all easy, simple stuff. The basis of His answering prayers for you and for me is do we have a personal relationship with His Son? If we do, then it's His will of what He wants to accomplish in the world, and we get to join our Heavenly Father in His kingdom work. And it's absolutely awesome. It's an assurance that we have. Now, notice a specific request that he tells us that we ought to be praying for a lot more than we are. In verse 16, John transitions. He says, look, guys, he says, if anyone sees his brother, he's talking about another Christian, somebody who is a follower of Jesus Christ. That's what a brother is to, in this context. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, ask God, and God will give him life. Here it is. If you see someone in the faith, could be your mother or father or sister or brother, but somebody who is a follower of Jesus Christ, could be a friend, fellow church member, somebody, and they're in the middle of a sin, and they know Jesus and you know Jesus. He says, when we pray for that individual, that God would help them, to overcome out of that temptation, to overcome that sin-destructive habits. He says, we have that answer to that prayer already. When it's a sin that doesn't lead to death. He goes on and says, well, no, there's a sin that leads to death, there's a sin that not leads to death. And to be honest with you, if you look this up, most commentators would say, this is a really hard one. I'm not sure exactly what that means. They spend a lot of time talking about all of that. My take is the sin, sin that leads to death in this book and in this context, it's, he's not talking about physical death. He's not talking about, hey, if somebody is sinning you know, in a way that it's not going to kill them, you know, like ODing on drugs or something. He's not talking about physical death. He's talking about eternal death. And he's talking about, in context, all the while, people that are 
denying Jesus Christ, denying that he ever came to this earth. I mean, they're completely turning their back on God. He says, yeah, in essence, you don't need to be praying for them in this way. You should instead be praying for those who are followers of Jesus. And when you see them in sin, your go-to should be, Father, my heart's broken. They're buying into a lie of this world. They're caught. They're stuck. They're experiencing the destruction. They're experiencing the shame. Father, would you deliver them out of that? Would you help them to experience life? You're not asking for their salvation. They already have eternal life. But you're asking for the fulfillment of that. You're asking for their sanctification, for them to be living out that more than they are. See, here's the thing. If you and I took, take this tact, gossiping about other people's lives goes out the window. Complaining about other people's sins goes out the window. Getting irritated and frustrated goes away. Why? Because we're actually doing something about it that actually will work. See, our tendency is to really... When somebody else messes something up and we see it and either they aren't living the way we think they should or according to God or it really directly affects us, we get offended. We begin to get judgmental. We get critical. We criticize. We talk. And all of that makes us just as much a sinner as they are. And what John is telling us is like, hey, guys, you do know, right, that God promises to answer your prayer. That those individuals, when they're stuck and living in that, and they've fallen into those sin tendencies, God's going to pull them out of it. Their life's going to change. I'll tell you a secret, husbands and wives. If you spent more time praying about your spouse's sins than you did criticizing them or gossiping about it, you probably would see more impact. And God just gave you a blank check that he's going to answer this one every single time. Every single time. He will address it. Now, what you and I have to do is we have to separate our destructive tendencies. James says we, uh, we have not because we don't ask God. All of us are living less abundant lives than what God desires for us because we don't bother to pray as much as we should. And then James says, and then when you do finally get around to asking, you ask amiss. You're askew. It's not quite square, because you're asking in a way out of a wrong motivation that you want to get that answer to your prayer for yourself, for your own good. In other words, James is saying this, hey, when your spouse is messing up in sin and angry or judgmental or doing stuff that, yep, you're absolutely right, it's wrong, instead of you praying even to complaining and criticizing, and instead of you even praying that God would deliver them from the sin out of a motive that you're happy and that your life is better, you should be praying out of a motivation with what John is talking about, that God would deliver them from the the anger and the bitterness and the unforgiveness and the hatred and all of the garbage in their heart. You should forgive in your heart, get your own heart right, 
so that you're not asking in God in a way with a wrong motive for your own selfish desires, but your prayer is actually for their good and their benefit, when you get into that space, God is giving you a blank check that He's going to work in their life. If they know Jesus, He's going to work. He's promised. He's promised us that He will do that. So I want to challenge you this morning uh, to live your life on the assurance of prayer. Too often, you and I blow by that. And we're like the kid that we say, well, I asked God a bunch of these things. Well, one or two things is going on. Either it's not in God's will, you had the wrong motives, or you had the right motives and it is in God's will, but it's just God saying, yep, I still got, you got to live in the space a little bit longer for whatever reason. But he promises to answer us. You see, here's the thing. When you and I pray about something, at least one thing always changes. Often two things. When the circumstances around us and our hearts burden and we've got these things going on, prayer will always change that scenario. No, it may not produce the results that you want, but it, at the very least, will always change you. Because what happens is, as we go to God, and as we pray with Him, and as our, we're in that mixed-up world, I mean, let's be honest. I gave you the scenario of a relationship, a husband and wife. It could be any kind of relationship. There, there's, there's sin and flesh in the middle of all kinds of prayers that we give to God. God, I'm hurting. God, I'm mad. They did this to me. God, ugh. But when we are taking that matter to God in prayer, rather than just lashing out and trying to solve the problem ourselves, what happens is, is God in His subtle way begins to, yep, you're right, but you're not quite right either, are you? And God the Holy Spirit begins to convict and He begins to work in your life, begins to get you to the point where you begin to separate that out and get you into a, a better spot to where you're not living for yourself, but you're living for God and beginning to truly love the other person in the middle of their sin-messed world, and what's happening as you pray, even if, even if the situations do not change, what has happened? You've changed. Your perspective's changed. You begin to have peace in your life again. You begin to have joy in the middle of the difficulty and the challenge and all of the awful things. You begin to have your head screwed back on straight. You begin to have a hope and a God in heaven. Prayer will always lead you back toward that place. In fact, to be honest with you, you can't get to that place without prayer. And so John's telling us to genuinely pray. So that will at the very least change. And then very often as we're praying and then we begin hearing what God is speaking into us through His Spirit, and we begin reading God's Word, then our prayer begins to get into alignment with the will of God. And then our prayers begin to, it appears to us that our prayers are changing the world around us. Truth of the matter is God's the one doing the changing. We're just joining Him and asking Him in the middle of it. But the world around us begins to change. Our perception of the world changes first, and then the other things begin to change as well. Guys, this is an incredible assurance that He has given us to answer our prayers. And He says, the sky's the limit. The only issue is, are we asking in the right way? Or are we asking according to His will? Third assurance, and I'm done. Out of this overflow... He then says in verse 18, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he, that's talking about Jesus, 
who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. See, what John is dealing with is our soul and our this soul sin nature, the stuff that just, it, it just, uh, like landmines in our life that just messes everything up for our soul. He says, look, I want to give you an assurance that you have a victory over all of that junk. Anybody who truly knows Jesus, they do not keep on in their life for the rest of their life in habituated, continuous sin. He gives us an assurance of victory. Well, Sean, I still struggle with temptations. Good, because I do too. We will always struggle with that. But to each one of you who knows Jesus, if we could somehow... Were, were you a little kid? Did your mom ever make one of those charts to put up on the fridge? You know, or maybe at school you get the little check, you know, did well, picked up your clothes, chore list, chart. Like, hey, moms love charts. It must be like in their DNA, right? How many of you had one of those charts? You, you, all right, some of you know what I'm talking about. The others, you're like, I have no idea. Uh, just trust me. Some moms are into charts. Um, if we could chart out every little thing, we would never want this. But if we charted out every little sin that we had ever did on the day that we did it, it would be awful. But if you were to step back and look at it, five years after you know Jesus, it would be a little bit less. Ten years after you know Jesus, it would be even less. There's this traje trajectory of growth and of change and of life change. Will we ever be perfectly sinless? No, that's the whole reason why we need Jesus to cover our sins. But we aren't. We aren't stuck in them. And there's no sin that we're addicted to that we don't have an excuse to say, well, I can't ever get out of this one. That's what John is leaving us with, that we have a victory over sin and we have protection from the enemy. The enemy's play, the evil one's play is to tempt you and I to sin against a holy God in heaven because it brings shame upon God, it brings destruction and death and kills and steals and destroys. That's his one play. And for you and for me, God himself tells us that the Lord Jesus keeps us. He protects us. That word protects, literally, he keeps us, holds on to us. And the evil one cannot lay a hand, cannot touch us. You know, running back in football... It is not a good thing when you fumble the football. It is never a good day. Your coach is never excited for a running back in football to fumble the ball. Coaches will spend time to teach a running back to not fumble it and how to hold on to it and secure it and tuck it in and guard it. And the defense is always their coach to try to swat it and pull it out. What this verse is telling you and me is that Jesus has us secure holding on to us in a way that the evil one cannot touch us and pull us out and destroy us. Now, does that mean that the enemy can't do anything to you? No, not exactly. In context, it's talking about sin. To understand a passage of Scripture, always look around at what's going on, and then always look at it in the fuller picture of the Bible. He, he's not saying that the enemy can't make, give you a bad day can't mess up life, can't really mess up life for you. But he cannot do it in such a way that does any damage to you and your relationship with God, 
that destroys your soul, that causes you to lose eternal life, that damages any of that, because you're protected by the Lord Jesus himself. So you remember the story of Job? Satan got permission from God to make a bad day for Job. He lost all of his kids, lost all of his wealth. Um, his body physically was from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet, was covered in boils. The Bible says he was in such misery, he would take literally like clay um, shards and scrape the pus and goo off his body. Just awful, awful. That was all a direct effect of the en enemy touching him. Touched him physically, touched him financially, touched him relationally, lost his family, his kids, and the only ones around him were just awful. His best friends and his wife were terrible to him relationally. So when the Bible says that the enemy, the evil one, can't touch us, doesn't mean that he can't do some awful things to you. But what it means is he can never touch your soul and he can never bring destruction, annihilation, if you will, to what that part that is really you, that you're secure in him. Folks, if that's the case, you and I should live with tremendous confidence. If that's the case, you and I should focus even more of living for God. If that's the case, you and I should not make such excuses with our sin. And say, God, you've given me victory. Help me to move forward. If that's the case, we should live with a, a joy. When we sin, there should be a grievance period. But when we confess that, there should be a joy knowing that our sins are already forgiven and that we're living in a way that God is giving us victory and increasingly experiencing that in our life. That's what he's done for us through the Lord Jesus. So this morning, I don't know where you are in your spiritual faith. Our music team's going to come up. But I want to challenge you. Are you living in a joy and in assurances and security in that relationship that you have with God? Are you living in that confidence of the faith, of the answered prayers that He wants to give us? But he says they're ours. We, all we have to do is ask and believe within His will that He gives them to us. I'm going to shift gears and give us a minute as our team leads us in a song, as this morning we're going to participate in the Lord's Supper together. And it's, it's out of an overflow of that, that we believe in Christ, that we are born of God, and that we live in that love relationship with Him. And this is a part of that. It's a, an expression of that love. It's a celebration, if you will. Maybe in some ways, you know, anniversaries, if you're, or birthdays, you know, you celebrate a birthday once a year, if you will, anniversaries once a year. The Lord's Supper is kind of like those things, but on steroids. It's a celebration that we do regularly to remember something that happened a long time ago, and that Jesus died on the cross, and He rose again on the third day, and that's what secures our salvation. So this is meant to be an honest-to-goodness, genuine celebration and renewal of our relationship with Him. I'm not saying that we need to start that all over again, but it's a it's to be a, a blessing in our life that as we focus on that, we think about that, and as we pray through that, that it encourages us and it challenges us and we experience in that, that love that He has for us right now in a way that we, we feel it, that touches our soul, that we think about it, it touches our mind. 
So as our team leads us in this song this morning, I want you to think about what we've talked about. Think about the fact that Jesus loves you and died on the cross for you. And, and if, if you are a child of His, if you've really surrendered your life to Him and are born of God, then we invite you to participate. And with a full assurance of that to celebrate as our ushers come up here to receive this. So ushers, as I pray, you come up and we'll pass these out for us and we'll worship God together. Pray with me, will you? Father, I thank you for the Lord Jesus. I thank you for his salvation. Thank you for the assurance of eternal life, of that life change. Thank you for assurance of answered prayer. God, would you forgive us? I know I do not run to prayer nearly as much as I should. God, would you help me to build that more into my life, to make that my default setting of... Uh, when things surface or I see things, Lord, would you answer those prayers to bring change into people's lives? And Father, thank you that you've given us victory and protection from the evil one, that we cannot be touched in a destructive way. Thank you for the testimony of Job, that you gave him endurance, even though that he faced more on this earth than any other person ever will, I believe. And he endured because of that protection that you give. Thank you that that is ours. Father, we celebrate this supper in just a minute, honoring you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to Rivercast, brought to you by River of Life Church in Gilderland, New York. Visit us on Sundays at 10 a.m. or online at riveralbany.com.